Side Yard Sidebar listeners, this week we talk with Tyson. He is an avid mountain biker in the Boise area. He is also a private pilot. So he tells us all kinds of mountain biking stories and stories about flying that are incredible. You don't want to miss this. Let's get after it. Let's go. Welcome to the Side Yard Sidebar. Grab your drink of the night and pull up a chair. Make yourself comfortable as we bring you discussion with substance and some of the best visitors from Boise and beyond. This is the Side Yard Sidebar. Welcome to the Side Yard Sidebar. You're here with your host, Zach, and your co-host and producer of the podcast, Dusty. What's Great up? to have you here. <laughs> Great and to be I, here. I know both of us are super happy because of the Niners win yesterday, and we're um, excited to be in the Final Four, I guess. NFC Championship against the Packers, it looks like now. Yep, they just won, beat the Seahawks. I was a good husband. I didn't cheer against the Seahawks tonight. I didn't cheer for them, but I didn't cheer against them. Kara loves the Seahawks. Yep. So, And all of her Seahawks friends were over, so... Oh, okay. It got quiet towards the end of the game, (laughs) and more conversations started happening between people, but... There's a couple points where it seemed like it might just be a blowout, but they at least hung in there and, you know, tried to make it a game and make a comeback, so... Yeah. Well, let's uh, go into Drink of the Night, and this is a first for the podcast. Our visitor tonight was so kind to make the drink of the night. We're all having the same thing. Dusty, what are we having? We are having a hickory-smoked maple bourbon. You're, I'm going to mess it up. With no, Knob with Creek. Knob Creek. There you go. Bourbon. Yeah, Knob Creek. Yep. So he, I'll, I'm going to let him explain it, but it's good. So yeah. good. Let's go ahead and introduce everybody to our visitor. Tonight we're with Tyson. And Tyson, what we do with each visitor is give them a minute or two to just give a short bio of introduce uh you yourself to our listeners but before you jump into that you can start with um explaining what you made for us for drink of the night and then launch into your bio well the drink of the night was pretty interesting uh this last week i was had a little time off work and what was it uh wednesday i had a bottle of Knob Creek Rye at home, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with it. And I had been the previous weekend out downtown, and I had this smoke drink that they put in a mason jar looking thing. And I thought to myself, you know, I'll give it a shot. And then I looked at the price, it was 15 bucks for the drink. And I'm like, there's no way it was worth 15 bucks. <laughs> I can do this at my house. You know, I've got a little smoker at home for that I cook on all the time. So I just took some pellets and fired them up and threw them on a cast iron grill and put a mason jar on top. and figure this out. You know, the sad thing is my wife is complaining to me that I probably hit it a little too hard this week because I went through that bottle of brand new Knob Creek in about a day and a half, just testing out the recipe. This is what yeah, you have to do. Yeah, that's what to I told her. Perfection. Yeah. So, um, what I do is just, um, the basic old fashioned, but I put a little maple syrup in it. And once I have that maple syrup mixed in and the smoke in the mason jar, just pour it in and then seal that mason jar real tight and let it sit for about five or six minutes in it. It's nice. It absorbs it. The the drink absorbs the smoke. Pour it in a glass. Got a really nice, you know, nose on it. it smells like a almost like a marshmallow, roasted marshmallow. Bourbon. Yeah, I definitely like the smell. Yeah, and yeah. The taste. It, it's you still have that um, old fashioned type of a taste, but definitely 
um, different. Yeah, it's, it's not a it's a no fruit old fashioned. We don't have any. Fruit yeah, that's in true. It. So Ooh. that's yeah. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so. no citrus needed on this one. No, right. not at all. Peel or anything. A else. little darker than with the maple, and but mm-hmm. exactly. I like it. Thanks yeah. for making that for us. You bet. You bet. So, little bio. Who are you? I don't know. I might struggle to fill up a minute and a half or two minutes <laughs> of this, but uh, you know, I'm, my name's Tyson. I grew up here in Boise, and I, I love the fact that the pods Boise and beyond for your guests. And um, you know, growing up in Boise, being a Boise native, um, went to Capital High School, which Zach. You're from Capital. Yeah, uh, sophomore year. Then so, I switched to Boise. Okay, then you switched for junior and senior. But yeah, yeah. Then I hit up Boise State and uh, did the whole business major thing. And uh, after after college, um, graduated and went into marketing. And I was a, a marketing director for several years for a, a local company. Um, and that was right around the time 2007 2008 hit. And I had just, my my wife and I had just built this house, and I was working for this builder as his marketing director. And, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that market hit and just hit me square between the legs. You know, I got my house, my house had just been built, just signed on the mortgage, took a hit on the, the price of the home, lost my job, got laid off. And I, at that point, I was just like, great, what am I going to do? I've got this new wife, new house, no income. Luckily, she was working for Boeing at the time, like, you know, with Kara. Yep. And um, so I was trying to, I was struggling to try to figure out what I was going to do. So I went on a, a road bike trip to Oregon, and a couple of buddies of mine were like, you just need to find something. I'm like, well, that's easy for you guys to say. You guys have jobs. One of you is a doctor. Like, I mean, like, it's really easy to say. So I went to this career fair at Boise State, and um, I, I ran across this table. Funny enough, it was at, for Target, the retail store. And I met this guy. His name's uh, Harry. And it Awesome guy, awesome manager. He convinced me to come interview, so I interviewed with him. Next thing I know, I've been there for four years. <laughs> I was at Target for four years as a HR uh, director and, and helping them with their HR. And and really, I liked the business aspect, but I hated the aspect of being in an office for four years. And during that time, I I was so discontent on sitting at a desk in an office and dealing with. And there's no this is have anything to do with like the retail people, but dealing with the the juvenile problems that come with younger retail employees, it just gets old yeah. after a while. Um, so went to my wife, I said, babe, I need a career change. This is not going to work. This is not long term. She said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I've always wanted to be a pilot. And she's looking at me like, what? <laughs> like, you want to do what? That's not that's not a career change. That's a life change. We, I mean, we're talking schooling. We're talking, I mean, everything is going to change in our life. So after some months of thinking about that, I said, uh, you know, I think this is really what I want to do. So during that time, she said, okay, uh, this is what you want to do. I'll support you in that. But you better see this through because we're not going to go halfway through. You decide not to do it. And now we're stuck. You're still at Target, and you're halfway through being a pilot. It just doesn't work that way. Now, disclaimer, I don't recommend to any of the listeners or you guys who <laughs> want to be a pilot to do it that way. Figure it out earlier in life. <laughs> because at the time, I had a one-year-old kid. It was just it was bad timing. So anyway, went to school, um, back to school for about another four years, and um, did everything that you need to do to become a pilot, and that's what I am today. So... Awesome. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that and many other things as we go. Yeah. That's me. So, yeah. Thanks for being here. Yep. One thing we were going to talk about is um, Dusty was telling me that you're into mountain biking mm-hmm. and you were talking in your bio about a road trip to Oregon mm-hmm. biking. 
Um, tell us about your love for biking and where that came from. And um, I don't know. I like for me, I've definitely been mountain biking or done some road biking, but I know very little about it. So talk Same to with us me. about that. I know I got a bike from like uh, REI. Yeah. That's about all I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went up a few hills. Yeah, there you go. I probably didn't even get it dirty. Yeah. So I know nothing. But you you know a lot about biking. Yeah. You build your own bikes. You Yeah, so all that good stuff. biking came actually from a necessity to need to to do something, you know, to be active. And when I was in high school and first part of college, I raced motocross and I had a motorcycle and just that was what we did every weekend. A buddy of mine uh, who I lived with at the time uh, his whole family was really supportive of our moto activities. So we would go all over the kind of the Northwest and race. And that was just what I did until I got married and I had to move to Seattle. And when I moved to Seattle, I had to sell my truck, sell my motorcycle. And I was just kind of lost. I had no idea what to do. And when I moved back to Boise, finally in 2007, it was a really expensive at the time. Like I said, I was just a new job, new house. It was really expensive to get back into moto. So I said, you know what? I'm going to try riding bikes. So I grabbed a road bike. My boss was really big into road biking. And, and I did that for a while. And uh, I really enjoyed the competitive aspect of road biking. Uh, I, I raced road uh, road bikes for a little while. And I really liked it. It made me, made me feel like that whole motorcycle, moto time. But then after a while, when you go ride on a road bike and you train, it's like staring at the same line on the same road for hours. And it got to the point where it's just so boring. It was like the same thing. And I don't have anything against road bikers. I mean, I don't either. <laughs> I Do mean, you? The, the spandex probably No, not really. Yeah. The <laughs> spandex wouldn't fit me quite as well as it once did. But you know, I just got tired of it. So I said, you know, I had a buddy of mine, Matt, who who'd said, you know, you should really try mountain biking. So I, I kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit about it. Finally, I went to eBay and I found this, um, this bike on eBay and convinced my wife to, to let me get it without a job. And <laughs> she, she, how many, me, how many drinks did that take? Uh, you know, I do have a story about a bike. <laughs> I got my, okay, we'll, we'll get to that point. When we'll I get to, get to that. Drink. Yeah. So, um, so she let me buy my first mountain bike, and uh, I fell in love with it, man. I felt like I was back on a moto. I felt like I was back in kind of late high school, early college in the mountains. I was terribly out of shape for what mountain biking cons- like required at that point. And uh, it just it pushed me to get in better shape to, to really want to be in that competitive side of mountain biking. And so throughout the years, I've, I've ridden – for just really myself and my fitness and I got a bunch of friends into it and I've had friends you know take me on trips I've I've gone the the cool thing about my job and we can get into this later is um, I've got to travel all over the U.S. and I've taken my bike with me to a lot of these places and so it's kind of my outlet I mean everybody has their hobbies or or what they want to do to to kind of release some stress frustration anger so um, anyway, I, that's when I started, um, back in 2000, gosh, that was 2000. I got off the road bike in 2010 and just started mountain biking. It's only been nine years. Only that's yeah. a long time. Yeah. Um, has it flown by for you as a mountain biker? Like it doesn't like nine years doesn't seem that long to you. Yeah. It doesn't seem long, but you know, what's crazy is when I look back nine years, in a lot of people, like you say, it's been a long time. I feel like I haven't been riding that long, and I feel like there's so much more I could do. Um, 
which kind of dovetails into what we talked about before the pod is getting uh, into kind of the advocacy side Mm -hmm. of mountain biking. And so that was one of the angles that I thought that, you know, not only could I improve my skill on the bike, but I need to start doing more for the community and the mountain bike community off the bike. And that's when I got contacted in uh, 2013 or 14 uh, by a local nonprofit um, called BAMBA, Boise Area Mountain Bike Association. And uh, they asked me to come aboard and be a part of their, their board and their leadership team just because of how much I was riding at the time. I mean, I was riding almost six days a week out on the trails. and I'd meet people. And so hmm. um, I got involved with them. And we did some really great things over that time that I, I was with them. Um, it was all about promoting mountain biking in Boise. So we talk, I, I heard Zach the other day, um, or might have been you, Dusty, on one of the podcasts, say that some of your listeners have said it's too Boise-centric. Yeah, that was me. That was you? That was me. So this is going to be a very Boise-centric part of my story. Um, but Boise has some of the best mountain biking that you can imagine in the Northwest. Really? And it's right out our back door. And a lot of people didn't know that. I didn't know that growing up here until I was in, you know, I was in my mid-20s. And so to get back, I, I joined this nonprofit and I donated a lot of my time and energy organizing folks to go out and dig trail. So we would go out on the weekends and we would dig trails and, and we'd have barbecues at the end of the day and we get donations. And, and this is kind of what we did for several years. And we got to the point where it expanded so big that uh, there was another sub uh, mountain bike association in town that wanted to join groups um, and join manpower. And so mm-hmm. we <clears throat> decided to collectively join our resources to create uh, just this one big body for mountain bike advocacy. So we would do, we do a lot of trail maintenance, um, a lot of trail building. Uh, we promote mountain biking in Boise because really mountain biking in Boise is still relatively new, believe it or not. It's not like Bend, Oregon, where you know that's a huge part of their economy. I think, you know, the government here doesn't quite see that yet. And a lot of people moving in, they don't want to see the landscape change. So that's really why Hmm. we existed, to try to change that perception. What are some of the best areas, like if there were one or two um, areas in the Treasure Valley that are your favorite to ride at? Good question. Um, You know, probably the easiest and, and... I don't know, most consistent places to ride is really kind of behind the camel's back holes, Gulch area. And that's where probably the majority of newcomers to Boise come and test the trail system out. That's really the hub because it's right next to Hyde Park, 13th Street Grill, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and there's uh, what Perea down there. There's a lot of, this isn't a plug for any of those guys, but uh, a lot of good places to eat post-ride. And that's a lot of the reason why we go down. I mean, at this point, being the age that I am, I ride so I can go have a burrito and a beer afterwards. <laughs> you know, the competitive you side. That's the only reason to ride. <laughs> right. Burn it off so you can have it. Yeah. So that's really kind of the, probably the main uh, place to go. But a lot of the times where we have the most fun is kind of a, a more competitive uh, group of guys that ride with, that I ride with. We like to go shuttle up to kind of the ridge, like at the top of Bogus Basin. We'll, we'll shuttle up there. And we'll rip down to Boise, to downtown. On off-road trails? Yeah, all trails, all single track. Uh, And there's some that are marked and some that aren't marked. And the unmarked stuff you'll probably never find. And that's how we want to keep it uh, from a lot of the people that are coming out of town that want to kind of impose 
what they feel Boise should be like. We don't want them on the the trails that we built. <laughs> so there's a lot of the stuff Taking up there. Taking a stand. Yeah, and you know maybe the Forest Service listens to this pod or you know, probably not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's reality, pretty interesting. That I never realized that I've seen uh, road bikes going up or down the road to Bogus. I didn't. I mean, it makes sense, but I didn't, never thought that you could ride all the way from the top all the way down. Oh, it's great. To the valley. Yeah, so I mean, I, great. I think that's really, if if you don't like riding uphill, that's the only way to do it. That's the only way I, I was going to ask you what yeah. the different types are. So, like, that would be pretty much a downhill uh, route or, right. or trail. And I have seen some videos on YouTube like one of my favorites is in Europe and it starts in, on this huge mountain and it starts in the snow, snow yeah. and there's oh, yeah. like 400, 500 bikers going and then it goes oh. all the way down into like a forest and then, a, you know, a city and to the finish line. But it's hmm. this huge downhill course. So in your mountain biking, is it uh, mainly downhill or are there flat rides, uh, uphill rides? Yeah, you I know, mean, it's, is it's it everything? A, it's everything. You know, the, there's a lot of different disciplines in mountain biking and a lot of it has to do with what is your strength, you know, what caters to your strength. And a lot of guys who are really good climbers tend to prefer like the gravel slash cross country stuff, um, where you do a lot of climbing and whatnot. And that's really, it's fun. It can be fun, but it's not my game. I like a lot of what they coin i guess nowadays uh enduro which you really don't care about the uphill you'll get there when you get there it's not a race to get to the top but really the time to have fun is going downhill and the best part about that type of riding is a lot of guys i ride with will pack a bunch of beers in their in their pack and when we get to the top we'll crack a beer and then have a drink and then just rip down and we get to the bottom we end up at you know 13th and have another beer that and burrito. Awesome. so that's awesome yeah it's just a good time and and it's we're to the age now where it's not you know everybody doesn't puff out their chest and it's not like this big race to the bottom we just go out and find some fun stuff to ride now so, the thing i was watching definitely was a race and there were wrecks everywhere it's, it's chaos so tell me about the injuries like oh, for you man. personally have you had injuries i've had a couple yeah okay <laughs> yeah, just... every i feel like it's every few months we hear about tyson getting hurt yeah it's so tell us like is there a story of like your craziest crash or i don't know if you don't want to go into that like what ultimately are the risks when you're mountain biking like are you doing a lot of risky things every ride or is it just here and there yeah and this almost kind of plays into how how my mind was a good fit for what i do as a career and i don't want to say i take a lot of risk in my career but it takes a a type of mindset to be able to accept risk to do what i do uh, for a living and for mountain biking i have that same mindset but maybe my risk tolerance is a little bit higher when i'm on a bike and some of the biggest crashes that I've, i've had have cost me time off the bike thousands of dollars and my wife just absolutely just torching me for doing it um (laughs) you know in 2000 it was 2016 was a really good one Uh, i was prepping for a race we have or we used to have uh, this race series in idaho it's called the idaho enduro series and it was a six six race uh series and i was prepping early season for that and we were I had ridden this track, like this run, a thousand times before, but somebody the night before came out with a shovel and reshaped some of the jumps. And I went off this jump that I've hit a thousand times and completely wadded up and snapped my collarbone and my, it tore my C, um, 
uh, my my joint out. Well, I can't remember what it's called. I've had too many drinks, but um, <laughs> in your shoulder, yeah, my shoulder. I mean, uh, I just ripped my shoulder out. I broke my elbow, and that was the first time that I've actually had hardware put into me. Um, when I went to the hospital, uh, they they said that it was so bad that that I needed to go see a specialist. The specialist said, yeah, if you want to get back to work, you're going to need to have surgery. So they did what, what they called belt and suspenders. I've got, uh, three bolts in my uh, left shoulder with some mesh, uh, titanium wiring and a titanium wire that kind of holds everything together. And I actually have a cadaver ligament from somebody who, who had passed and donated, you know, was a donor, donated mm. that body part to me. And so it's today because of his ligament that I actually have movement in my shoulder that I can control it. And uh, my body accepted his his ligament very well. I didn't have any complications with that. So that was a big one. That was six months off the bike uh, to get That's back. crazy. Yeah. And did that impact your work schedule as well? Yeah, at the time, I remember I was flying contract for exclusively for a guy in town and he, I'll never forget when I had to call him and tell him, he, he, he said to me, he goes, Tyson, when are you going to grow up? <laughs> and as like a professional pilot, you don't ever want to hear that from a guy that you're flying for. And oh, I was gosh. like, oh boy, like, am I going to keep my job? Luckily, this guy was more of a mentor than anything to me. Um, and so it was really good. Probably the worst injury that I've had that's impacted my family happened last year, uh, early season. It was uh, March 15th of last year, 2018. And we were just behind Camel's Back, like I said, just did a trail that I've done a thousand times before. It was just, it had just snowed. I had jumped from one side of the trail to another. I, my front tire hit some really soft stuff, jerked me sideways, and I flipped. And I got knocked out. And I, I just kind of remember waking up on my, uh, on my stomach and when I woke up, I rolled over to my right, and my right shoulder and collarbone just collapsed, and almost like a taco. Just, just, oh. just. I just rolled over, and I remember I was in so much pain that like I almost passed out again. And I, I knew at, the, at that time I broke my left collarbone. This was my right. I knew instantly that my right collarbone was broken. And then as I, as I was sitting there, my hip started hurting. I'm like, man, did I break my hip? And I started to move a little bit, and it it felt like my hip was broken. And so my the guys that were with me, luckily I was with somebody because I ride probably 90% of the time by myself. They're like, dude, you just need to chill out. Sit here. We're going to call the ambulance. So Boise Fire Department, those guys were awesome. They came up. They in the ambulance, I mean, everybody, the paramedics, everybody was involved. They, like, strapped me to a board. Uh, you know, they put me on this uh, Gator six six by six or three by th- whatever, and it yeah. got me down to the hill. And they're trying to convince me to transport me to the uh, to the ER. And I'm like, no, I you know, I, I I I can do this. I can just somebody drive me, you know, the ER. And they're like, no, dude, you need to go to the. We'll take you. You need some morphine. We'll go. I'm like, no, I don't want to pay for that. <laughs> Worst decision of my life. Oh. I should have paid for the ride because when I got there. I remember getting I, my buddy Brandon took me to the ER, and I, he has this big Dodge, and I had to get out of this big Dodge F three or, or it was a thirty five hundred, and I had to step down. And my wife was there, met us there. She was freaking out, and she had a wheelchair. And keep in mind, I thought I just broke my hip, and my whole side of my body was just not functioning. I had a concussion, and she 
wheeled out the wheelchair. I sat in it. She didn't lock it, and the wheelchair just dropped. Oh. And I thought I was going to die. <laughs> it was so bad. That sounds painful. So oh, long geez. story short, I ended up with um, a plate in my collarbone, and uh, it was a it was a pretty pretty nasty surgery. I got about a, an eight or nine inch scar on my right collarbone, and w- with my hip, I have a really rare uh, tear. It's called uh, a Mural Lavalie lesion where your skin and the fat tissue shear away from your muscle. So from probably mid-thigh to my lower back, the skin and fat aren't attached to the muscle. So I have no feeling in, in here. Like I, you could stab me with a pen and I wouldn't feel it. But the problem... I got a pen right here. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> but, the pro, but the problem is uh, the, um, the fluid at the time, it had built up in there. So it looked like I was a 90-year-old granny that had saddlebags. And I could push on my my hip the fluid, and you could see it travel to my lower back. It was like just this hole in the side of my body. Yeah, so... That's crazy. Anyway, that was... That was... (laughs) That... The reason why I say it impacted my family the most is because that happened on a Wednesday... And on a Friday, we were supposed to fly out for a trip to Cabo with my wife. And oh. she I had to cancel. And I'm like, babe, I can do it. I could I could figure this out. I could do it. And I we had to cancel the trip. And again, this is one of these things that if you get hurt a lot and you have a spouse and you have to keep canceling family events, it doesn't end well. <laughs> so And your wife, your wife is very kind, very gracious. Yeah. But I can see where after a few times you're like, seriously? Oh, man. She, so she, <laughs> I was at the point where I was immobile. Like, I I was so messed up that she had to bathe me. And she bathed me for, like, I don't know, five or six weeks. And just she would have to, like, get in the shower, like, get it. I mean, it was just bad. And eventually I was fine. Like, I could have bathed myself, but I didn't tell her. So she just kept, <laughs> she, she just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. So anyway, taking advantage a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so it ended up being a, a pretty good story. But okay, so before we move on, because I want to get into the flying stuff, um, you said that at one point you got a bike. Something about how I asked how many drinks did that oh, take? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. So um, this was in 2016 or 17. I just gotten off my injury, and. Um, we were at a, uh, <laughs> we were at a uh, Mai Tai downtown. This is no plug. We're not, you know, we're not giving <laughs> Mai Tai. So we had had a couple of drinks, and I had I had already had a race bike, but um, I always wanted my wife to get into it. And you, this is worst idea ever is try to talk your spouse into a hobby that you have that she has no interest in. So I I had a couple happy hour buy one get ones and i intentionally got her a couple buy one get ones (laughs) and i you guys i mean you guys know my wife she's pretty tall and she's just barely the same height as the size of bike that that i ride so i thought this is perfect so (laughs) anyway uh she gets a couple drinks in her and she gets a little loose and conversational and i said "Ah, babe uh, i really think you need to get into this and she goes, well, what do you, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think I need to, to mountain bike. I, she's a big runner. She likes to do that. And I said, well, let's do this. I'm going to buy you a bike. And the best part about it is we're the same size. We, we ride the same size <laughs> bike. So let's do this. So I already had a bike at the time. And, and she kind of hemmed and hawed. And she goes, okay. And she, you know, she's like, 
three or four drinks in. You know, she doesn't really remember. And she, so uh, no plug for my tie, but they pour them strong. They do. They do. Yeah. So um, so the next day, I ended up ordering another bike in her size, which happened to be my size. <laughs> <laughs> that's how the whole two bike cycle went with us. And so now. Um, that and an unfortunate insurance incident where the insurance paid for a bike. I, I now kind of consistently have two bikes, but I always claim one of them's hers because she's the same size. But she's never thrown a leg over it. Not once. Not one time. Maybe Dang. soon. Maybe after this podcast, she's going to go, you know what? That's mine. Yep, exactly. I'm taking it. Yep. And then really, and then one more. Before we leave this, if we have listeners that want to get into mountain biking... There's got to be some sort of etiquette that a newbie needs to know yes. so they don't make other people upset, right? Yeah, and you know, that's that's the sensitive subject in Boise these days. We have a lot of people that are moving from out of state that you guys have talked about on the pod that, that you know, us as native guys from Boise know that everybody's moving in and they want to make mm-hmm. it theirs. But the problem is everybody's moving in, but the people who have ridden here and use these trail systems their whole life are now being told what to do by the people that just moved here from California last week. And it pisses us off. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those <laughs> things. Tell us that, how you really Oh, feel. man, it's so bad. And, um, you know, really the trail trail etiquette is don't be, you know, don't be an idiot on the trail. Like, be nice, be courteous, be open to, you know, letting somebody by. That's really it. As the way that Boise and, and the city council view mountain biking is like we're kind of the enemy of the state. Like we're the guys that cause all the problems up in the foothills. It's the, the equestrian riders and the hikers and the runners that really are the focus. But in reality, the mountain bikers built the majority the of those trails. Um, you know, and, and I'm not taking anything away from the guys – Rich rivers that they've spent a lot of time, but a lot of the throwback trails were built by mountain bikers. And so we're getting a lot of that stuff taken away from us. And so we have to really try to appease the people, the multi-use users out there. So yeah, the trail etiquette is don't be an idiot. Don't be an ass, you know, be courteous, say hello to the person. Don't run over the new California woman's dog that's running on the trail off leash. That's trying to bite you. Even though you want to boot the thing, just don't run it over. (laughs) And, okay. and you'll be okay, and then you won't get all uh, Uphill, downhill, who gets the right away? Uh, uphill always gets the right away. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't matter who you are. Downhill, if you're on a downhill mountain bike trail and you get hit, that's your own fault. That's okay. that's what I say. Okay. Sounds that's great. That's what I say. So, all right. Anyway, I have, I, I have hit somebody. I, I'll admit, like, I've head on somebody, um, and it's been my fault. But, you know, we both get up. We kind of swear a little bit and kind of move on. But I, <laughs> that I mean, sounds about right. Though. I, I've, I've had, I've been on some rides though, where we've been on big group rides and we've been going downhill and there's been a really cool people that step off to the side and they're like, yeah, go on, you know, go ahead. We don't want to screw you guys up. And there was one guy in, uh, a couple of years ago who shoved a dude off the trail on a mountain bike as he was going by, just full on shoved him, split his head open, had to get stitches, bloody every, everywhere. Just because, he was upset that there was a, there was more than like three of us just pushed us. Just, anyway, we're not the only guys that need etiquette out there. It's everybody. everybody. Yeah, there should be trail etiquette for everyone. Exactly. Yep. 
Can't we all just Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's tough, too, because even if it's formally written down, like if somebody's just going for a hike or just going for a mountain bike ride, like they may not read all of it. So I do think a lot of it's common sense and just being nice and looking out for people. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's jump over to the pilot side of things and switch topics. The first question I wanted to ask, like when you were talking about your bio was, how you did talk about how kind of that transition from target and and deciding to get into that but like within your schooling um you said it took four more years so um what was involved in that like for somebody that doesn't know anything about becoming a pilot yeah well part of the time that i mean part of the reason why it took me so long to get to the point where i needed or i could make a paycheck was because i was working full-time during the time i was going back to school but to what it takes to become a pilot is really, <laughs> it's really not that hard in the beginning. If you just want to be a private pilot, if you just want to take your buddies up for a trip up to McCall to grab a really expensive hamburger and fly back, um, that's easy. Uh, it's everything after that that takes the time. Uh, you can become a private pilot relatively cheap, relatively quickly, probably within three months, you could go rent a little Cessna 172. Um, but there's layers. So the layers go, you start with your private pilot certificate. Then you get a rating, which is typically an instrument rating afterwards. And after your instrument rating, you have to accumulate so many hours before you can be a commercial pilot. And a commercial pilot doesn't mean you're going to fly for Southwest or Alaska uh, it just means that you can be compensated or you can be for hire uh, to make money. And that typically ranges, um, I mean, I, the time frame ranges, but you need a minimum of about 250 hours to be there. But when you're renting an airplane for 250 hours at $150 an hour, I mean, do the math, it starts to add up and it gets expensive. So that's a lot of trips that you got to take you know, with your spouse or your buddies or your significant other, just to random places. And that was probably one of the most fun parts of my journey to become a pilot is my wife and I and my friends and I would go to these random places. Like we just fly to Park City just because I needed the hours. Or we would fly up to McCall or we'd go to Sun Valley or we'd go to the Oregon coast. Um, you know, you name it. If we wanted to go see something, the excuse was I need to get enough hours to become a flight instructor. So uh, eventually, after all these little trips, uh, I got to the 250-hour threshold. And that's when you can become a commercial pilot. And a commercial pilot, like I said, doesn't mean much. It just means you can be for hire. And then once you're at that level, there's more to it. You can either become like a multi-engine commercial pilot. You can be a single-engine commercial pilot. You can be a flight instructor. You can be a... um, you know, an instrument instructor. I mean, there's so many different ways you can go, but nine out of 10 pilots who choose this as a career do all of it. And so that's, again, more money and time and random flights. Now, I would say seven out of 10 of us who become career pilots who start out this way outside of the military will become flight instructors. And a lot of my stories come from the flight instructor realm at the time where (laughs) Uh, I was a flight instructor teaching people how to fly. But in reality, I I look back like, man, I didn't have really the experience that 
I think people should have to be able to teach people who have never flown. I mean, you catch my drift. Absolutely. Like, it's it's almost scary that that they let guys teach other guys and gals to fly with that little experience. I mean, knowing what I know now. Yeah. And so um, once you're there at that 250 hours, you you slam out a bunch of hours, and really everybody asks, well, why don't why don't you just go to the airlines? Well. The airlines require uh, what's called an ATP or an airline transport certificate or airline transport pilot certificate, and uh, that's at fifteen hundred hours. So you know what I just talked about how hard it is to get to the two hundred fifty hours now yeah. expensive. Well, now you're doing that up to fifteen hundred hours, and so that's where guys get hung up. Is there's it, there's so much of a cost to rent an airplane or at least get a job that pays. You know, I started out at $10 an hour instructing students, uh, and that was only when that prop was turning. It's not a really lucrative business or, you know, an income up front. And I had a newborn at the time, and Abby was just like, you're crazy. Like, what are, what are we doing? <laughs> I mean, we're not, we're not, I mean, we're barely surviving here. Um, but then once you get to that ATP point, then... When you take that test, you were smart enough on that day to pass the minimums. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean anybody's going to hire you. Um, you have to go out and try to prove yourself and and really get to know um, the network out there of people that who you could fly with. There's really two ways at that point you could go. You could go to the airlines or you could go totally private, um, which is what I did. Right. Um, the private side has its perks and the commercial side has its perks like everywhere else. But, um, you see a lot of the guys, uh, it's very consistent schedule. You know what you're doing day in and day out, go to the airlines. Or if you're guys like me who like to be spontaneous that don't need a, like a regimented schedule, you know, a lot of us stick to the private side. The private side's cool. I mean, it's, you get to meet a lot of cool people. You get to meet a lot of people that aren't so cool out there. A lot of people with money. Um, you get to definitely see how the other half lives. Um, and, you know, even though that other half is out there, there are some really decent people that yeah. live in that other half. Yeah. So when you get into that private um, side of it, are you flying their planes that they own? Or is it just planes they rent and then you just fly for them? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, there's there's the charter side where people have enough money but not enough to own their own airplane. So there's charter pilots out there that have to kind of stick to a regimen um, and fly rented. Or I mean, uh, their airplanes owned by a company that essentially lease them out per hour to customers. Um, or there's the people uh, that have so much money that they need an airplane to, for a tax write-off, you know, and that's why they have it and they use it for business purposes. So that's the realm I'm in. I've, I've, I've flown for um, several, actually, I've never flown charter. All the groups that I've flown for were guys that their business or them themselves have owned the airplane and we've had a, our own little flight departments. So, And you, you have to get trained on those airplanes, You, I'm assuming, Yep. Like, it's not like you can go, oh, let's have this one, let's have this one. Like, you have to know that plane inside and out and everything. Exactly, yep. So when we get uh, an airplane, you know, it's funny, everybody always asks, well, could you fly that or could you fly this? Well, technically, we can fly it. Like, we we are at a, we have a certificate level <clears throat> that says, yeah, we're competent to fly the airplane. But every airplane has what's called uh, above 12,500 pounds or a jet requires a type rating. 
And so a type-specific training goes to that airplane. And it's a very intensive um, training specifically for that airframe. Um, I just, uh, this last, what was it, November, I spent five and a half weeks in New Jersey because the company that I work for had purchased a new airplane. And I was in New Jersey in a hotel for five and a half weeks going to school seven days a week. I think I only had two days off the whole time I was there all day, every day in a classroom and in a simulator to learn that specific airplane inside and out. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty intense. That's pretty intense. So you fly for, is it a local company, a local group? Yeah. Yeah. So without them being named, it's a, it's a, it's a group that is very successful. Um, it's a, a company that has a bunch of different smaller companies that they manage and own underneath them. And, uh, the best part about it is, is we're not public. It's all private. And the owners are the salt of the earth, man. They are so great to fly for. One of the owners, every time she gets on board the airplane, always apologizes to me. And at first, I was like, why is she apologizing? And she said one day, she goes, I'm so sorry you have to be away from your kids. I'm like, huh. wait wait a minute. Like, this is like what I'm supposed to do, right? Like, you're, <laughs> this is my job. This is my job. And... and Flying for those type of people make me want to go to work every day or the few days that I do go to work a month Yeah. versus dreading having to fly these people with the mindset that, man, they're, you know, they're rich. They think they deserve this and that. So it's a good, it's a good work-life balance. Nice. And how often are you, how often are you flying? What's your schedule look like? Because I'm assuming people are like, you're a private person. Pilot, are you gone most days of the week, or do you ever fly? <laughs> this is probably the most most sensitive topic between my wife and I. I fly probably on average eight days a month. Seven, I mean, on a busy month, maybe 10, 12. Okay. But it's not a lot. Um, and the nice thing about that is it allows me to have that life balance, not the work balance, but the life balance of being able to take my kids to school every morning, being able to, you know, be at home, being, being able to go to their soccer games and practices. If I were at the airlines, like they don't care about that stuff. You're on the schedule. You're on the schedule. They don't care if it's your, your kid's graduation or if it's Christmas day or Thanksgiving, you know, they don't care. Um, for, for me, I, I'm very fortunate and I got really lucky in the position that I'm in that, since it's a family-owned small company, they tend to take those same days off that that we would typically take. They usually don't fly on the weekends. Um, holidays, we get to spend with our families. Um, we don't fly a whole lot. My boss always reminds me, always reminds me that I have one of the best part-time, full-time jobs that's out there. So, Heck yeah, yeah. So well, they sound like great people. Yeah, yeah. That's cool that you found. Like, did you have um, other? jobs before you got into this one yep. privately yep so how did you um how did what led you into this position uh, this, this is where the stories come in <laughs> okay yeah let's hear some of the <laughs> let's story. do it Get so, to the story. Uh, story time with tyson so uh, when i was learning how to fly i had this uh, really cool guy i mean I had lots of mentors um that were teaching me how to fly but i had this cool guy named jake who who essentially taught me how to fly as a private pilot and i asked him i said jake why are you still a why are you still instructing at the time? This was like 2007, 2008. 
economy was terrible. Nobody was hiring pilots. And he had so many hours that he could have today walked into a captain position at any airline. I mean, he had, he had so much time. So he, he taught me how to fly. Great, great dude. And he kind of set me up for kind of my future. And we'll get back to him in a minute. But as I was, uh, I got to the point where I was starting to make a little bit of money and flight instructing, uh, you, you have to, uh, the flight instructing portion really gets, gets to where you get hair on your back. I mean, it really makes you scared to a point where you have to be good, not to be scared, uh, at okay. what you do. Uh, and some of these stories come into mind, like I, I had when I was instructing several students that really scared me, uh, scared me to the point where I thought that this was going to be it you know, for me. And one of them stuck out. We were doing some, some maneuvers out in Emmett and we were practicing. Emmett has a relatively short for any compared to Boise runway. Uh, and we do these short field takeoffs, short field landings. And this is just kind of what we do. And, um, this, this guy who, who will remain unnamed, um, <laughs> before he even had his pilot certificate had purchased two airplanes. He had, Purchased on his own. On his own. Yep. So he was one of those guys that had more money than he knew what to do with, but he didn't have the skill to do what he wanted to do with it. So I got this student. My boss called me and he said, hey, we got this new student for you. He just came out of a school out of Florida. And I was like, great, we'll we'll start him. You know, he must have just moved up here. Well, I find out later that the Florida school kicked him out for not being able to meet like the minimum level expectation. And I figured that out the first flight because I marched into my, my boss's office. And I said, I thought you told me this guy's been in school for a year, year and a half. Like what, what is going on? Like, I think, I mean, the poor guy could barely talk on the radio. Um, so anyway, we're, we're out there in Emmett and we're, we're doing these maneuvers and he, we're doing this short field approach, and I see that it's starting to deteriorate. He's starting to lose his situational awareness, and he he was getting nervous, and I, I could feel it. And always in the airplane, as an instructor, you you prep your student to say uh, what's called positive ex- exchange of controls, and that is me saying I've got the airplane. The student responds, "You've got the airplane." Then you, as a pilot in command respond back i've got the airplane so there's three three times three times okay so i said i've got the airplane and he said you've got the airplane i said i've got the airplane but he didn't let go of the controls and i said i said his name you gotta let go let go let go and as i was flaring to land the airplane he pulls the nose of the airplane up straight into the sky which causes the airplane to stall about five feet off the ground. Luckily, we were only five feet off the ground. The airplane hits the runway, and we bounce like four or five times. And he's freaking out, and he will not let go of the yoke. And he starts kicking his feet. Well, in a little 172, when you kick your feet with the rudder, it turns the nose wheel. Well, he kicked his right, or he kicked his right foot, and the nose wheel shot to the right. We hit a landing or a runway edge light, tears it off the post, and we go into the dirt. And at this point, I've, I'm on the skids. We're braking. And there was a, a um, little ditch that was like four feet in front of us when we came to a stop. 
And we stopped and I looked at that ditch. I'm like, we could have flipped this airplane because this guy freaked out in the airplane and I could not get him to let go of the, the controls. And at that point I was just like, Oh, like I had to wrestle with, I it was my first time that I've had to wrestle kind of with like that could have ended up bad. We could have burned up this airplane. We could have really been hurt. So, and were you using one of his planes that he had bought to train in or was it? No, a this, rented this one? Was, was a rental. Oh geez. Yeah. And, um, at that point, we what'd st- you say to him? We stopped and uh, we had to push the airplane out of the dirt onto the side of the runway. I, there was a phone, uh, like an airport ops phone, that was there that you're supposed to call for the airport manager. Anybody who came to the airport had to call. So I called the airport manager and I told him who I was. I gave him my certificate number and I said exactly what happened. Like I'm, I'm an instructor, a student. This is what happened. Um, you know. I'll give you my information. I'll give you the student's information. We want to make sure we pay for this one runway edge light. Um, and that was it. I mean, I never heard from the airport manager. He just said, hey, thanks for calling us. Um, we'll get it taken care of. But I remember on the flight home uh, back to Boise, this Emmett to Boise, which should, shouldn't should take too long. I remember I said, you are not to touch the airplane controls. Do not say anything. We're going to get back to Boise, and we're going to debrief. So I flew the airplane back to Boise. We landed, no incident. We came in. And at that point, I said, you know what? This is not for you. Like, I, I'm your fourth instructor. You've got, I know you just bought two airplanes. This is probably not the route that you want to take. And his whole thing was he wanted to be a pilot so he can come back and forth to Boise, between Boise and Canada, to see his kids and take his kids up there. And I had to have a conversation like, do you really want to have your kids in an airplane with you in these situations? Like, what would you have done if I wasn't there? You know, and and so it was one of those moments where you never want to tell a guy that this isn't for you, but that. That you had to. I had to. So was that the night you came over to my house after that? No, the night I came over to your house. (laughs) Oh, there's a different one. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I was flying over to Baker City and um, I was in a single engine airplane. This was when I was. a uh, corporate pilot at the time. We were flying a little Cessna 182 over to Baker City. And uh, we had a a couple hops that we had to do. We had to be at a meeting up in Lewis, or no, it was uh, Coeur d'Alene. Gosh, it was like early, 8 o'clock in the morning. And I had to go pick somebody up in uh, Baker City, one of our employees. And I had an employee on board. Uh, She was sitting in the front seat. And it was like a 3.30 showtime. Uh, which showtime means uh, they would show up to the airport and then we would depart a few minutes after that. So it's pitch black. I'm flying over to Baker City and uh, I click the... Uh, when you're at an uncontrolled airport, the lights are controlled from the from the actual airplane. So I turn the lights on on the airplane by clicking the radio and the lights pop up. And as I started my descent into Baker City, I started to pull the manifold pressure, the power back on the airplane and the airplane quit. Single engine engine quits. They're just like, oh my gosh. It's pitch black. I know there's a mountain in front of me. I, I know I can see the the runway and I see the runway and I hadn't put flaps down. So there wasn't a lot of drag. And I ended up barely making it to the end of the runway. And the airplane was dead silent, completely shut off. And we landed and my passenger wakes up when we landed and she says, why isn't the airplane running? I said, well, Sandy, we're not going. We're not going to Coeur Lane today, so I end up having to literally push. I, I called um, 
flight service and they had to shut the runway down. And I uh, had to push the airplane physically off the runway to get to the side. And they ended up going on their trip via car. Come, come to find out that uh, it was some mechanical uh, issue with a fuel controller. The fuel controller, something in there broke and it flooded the engine. And there was nothing I could have done uh, to the airplane. But that being said, losing an engine in an airplane isn't that bad when you have two engines. But losing an engine on an airplane with one engine, it's pretty it bad. Sucks. Thing. That sucks. That's one of those minute, that that time in your <laughs> life where you're like, holy smokes, man! Like that could have been a lot that rattled worse. you a lot. Oh yeah, that was when I came over and I was like, I was shaking up, man. Yeah, like, I had, I had a kid, I had a family, I had a mortgage. Like, oh, man, that was rough. I remember I poured you a drink. You got in yeah. and and your wife had said something. And you came in and you were visibly like frazzled, shaking. I think I remember just pouring you a nice strong yep. drink and yep. said, "Here, yep, let's just here you go." And and really, um, and I'm, Zach, I'm getting to where getting to the answer. I know we're coming up on time here, but uh, <laughs> no, it's all good. I'm loving this. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll keep it going. Uh, so uh, the the best story of them all is um, I'll never forget this story. I was flying to a. Um, it was like an agriculture. I was flying for a guy who um, had an agricultural business and he did chemicals and he went to this trade show every year in um, North Dakota. And we were going into Grand, for- Grand Forks, North Dakota. Have you guys ever been there? Yeah, nope. It's awful. No. Awful. It's like one of the coolest places in North America. So we go there. Um, and at the time, I just, it was, I was on contract and I told my wife, I said, hey, babe, this is a little bit of money. We could, you know, it's a quick trip, quick turn. I know you're pregnant. I know you're like within time where you should be in labor, but this should be no problem. This is going to be a quick out, you know, two days, and I come back. I'll be back before the baby's born. And uh, <laughs> this is the worst. That's a, that that probably didn't go smoothly. Oh my as, gosh! So <laughs> as you think, yeah. So um, so we go over there. Uh, the trip was fine on the way over, and I, I have a full airplane full of friends, or uh, not friends, uh, full of passengers. And uh, we come back, and we have to make a random stop in Idaho Falls. We brought somebody home. And when we brought them back to Idaho Falls, uh, it was it was a non-event. It was snowing. We dropped them off. And then I text Abby, and I said to Abby, I said, hey, listen, um, I'm just in Idaho Falls. I'm on my way home. And she goes, you better get home. I'm in labor. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> like this is going to be at the worst time. Like it's snowing outside. It's in the middle of February. Um, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to be home in about an hour. I'll come straight to the hospital. Just have your mom take you to the hospital. So she's like, okay, hurry up and get home. So, okay. So now I, you I, read that in the text message, right? <laughs> like the yelling. <laughs> yeah, the exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All caps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she just says, you know, hurry up and get home. So, so we depart like no issue. Like I, I'm hauling back and, and I'm with another pilot, the guy who owns the airplane, who's also a pilot. And he's like, hey, listen, when you get on the ground, I'll take care of the passengers in the airplane. You just go straight to the hospital. I'm like, great. Thank you. Because my wife is going to kill me if I don't. <laughs> I don't really have an option in this. So we get back to Boise, and um, it's snowing in Boise. And we have this, um, what's called an arrival uh, in pilot speak. But needless to say, it's just to help traffic uh, into Boise. So I'm, I'm flying on this arrival. And you have these, this sequence, you know, pilots use checklists all the time. And we were going through our checklist and it was a before landing checklist. And one of those before landing checklists is making sure that your gear's down. Well, the, the co-pilot calls for the gear down. So, uh, or I call for the gear down. My co-pilot selects the gear down and the gear comes down and 
I hear this 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 horn, this warning horn that I've only heard in training. I'm like, what the heck is that? And I look down, and it's it shows that my landing gear isn't down. I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't right. So I have to I have to radio to the tower. I said, hey, we're gonna need some delay vectors to figure out an issue. So they send us around, and then we're kind of flying circles, and we go through all the checklists, everything that we can possibly do as pilots to get the gear down. And we can't seem to figure out how to get it down. Like, it's just not going to work. And so I request a flyby of the tower, and I said, hey, I just need you guys to confirm that my right main gear is down because I'm showing an ind- indication that it's not down and locked. And so we fly by really slow, and they said, yeah, we can see it's down, but we can't confirm if it's locked or not, but we just see a tire down. So, okay, great. Well, training kind of kicks back around, and you don't want to land an airplane if a gear is going to collapse with full fuel. We've got a lot of jet fuel on board. We've got passengers on board, and this horn is blowing in these passengers' ears. And the funny thing so about the it, whole plane can hear it. Whole plane can hear. Oh wow! It. Yeah, the are best, people starting to freak out? The, like, were you radioing yeah, back? Yeah, yeah. The best part about this was, I had a retired Alaskan Airlines pilot on board and his wife, and his wife was freaking out, and he kept saying, "Honey." It's gonna be okay. Like he did, he had zero care in the world. Like he's like, this is gonna be fine. And his wife is like, free, you know, like freaking out. Like somebody get her some oxygen. You know, she's gonna pass out. So anyway, we ended up having to fly around in circles to burn off all this fuel because we didn't want to land real heavy and have this, uh, you know, big fireball. Keep in mind that my wife's in labor. You know. So I'm flying around, burning off this fuel, and you guys, have you guys seen that Find My Friends or Find My app, you know, on Yeah, on your phone. Oh, yeah. yeah, So my wife is in the parking lot in labor, like, checking, and she sees that I'm, like, near Boise, and it just so happens to ping that I'm near, like, a bike shop downtown. And she's texting me while I'm in the airplane trying to deal with this emergency. Like, you're not at this bike shop, are you? I'm like, I can't deal with this right now. Like... (laughs) Like, I, I she's issue. in labor, but oh, then is still texting. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Get here now. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I. Uh, so we, when that happened, did they s- just say, "Here's your course, fly in this circle yeah, for they, the next whatever"? Yeah, exactly. Time frame. They they give you a block altitude and a block radius to kind of fly around in circles, and at that point, I had to declare an emergency, so I could get emergency services on the ground. Excuse me. Um. So. They had to shut down the runway. They had two or three fire trucks out there. They had emergency services vehicles, and they were about ready, you know, to foam us and you know get the fire out because they thought that was gonna we were just gonna turn into a fireball. So um, I remember coming into land, and I just I thought to myself, like this this could be it. Like this is rough. Like this is like one of those moments in your life where like you don't know what's gonna happen after this. So. I, I remember intentionally briefing the passengers, and when I landed, I said, we're going to land with the right wing high because I wanted that left main wheel to touch down first, and I wanted to try to keep the airplane right the right airplane wing off the ground as long as possible before if we did hit the wheel and if it collapsed, that would be the last thing that happened and we'd be as slow as possible. So we landed, and I remember riding that left main gear, and we were only on one wheel for about, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 feet. And I remember the airplane was running out of airspeed and controllability, and we started to roll to the right, and it hit. And I'm like, oh, thank you. 
think you just stay, 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 stay. And then the nose wheel hit. And then we just rolled out to the, I didn't even touch the brakes. We rolled the 10,000 feet of the runway all the way down. And I remember just seeing the, the ambulance and the fire trucks just race down the runway. And we briefed with the uh, control tower. We said, hey, okay, we're going to turn off here. We're going to shut down the engine. We're not going to attempt to turn the airplane in that direction of the wheel because we don't want it to, to buckle or whatever. Yeah. So uh, we ended up shutting the airplane down on the uh, just right after the taxiway uh, into the parking area. And the other pilot's like, go, just go. Like it was the same plan. Well, I bail out of the airplane and the fire chief comes up and he's like, Hey, hey, is everybody okay on board? Like, what, what do you need? You know? And I said, listen, man, I got to go. My wife's in labor. I, I got to go. And he's like, no, you can't go yet. And I'm like, there's another pilot on board. Talk to him. Like, I got to go. And so I'm dry. I just bail. Like, I don't tell anybody what's going on. And the other pilot luckily took care of everything. But I remember getting calls from the control tower like, hey, we need a statement. We need to know what's going on. And I'm like, hey, I need to call you guys tomorrow because my wife's in labor. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? Your wife's in labor. We got to take care of it. We shut down a runway for you. Uh, and so I get, to the, um, I get to the hospital and my wife's just, oh, she was so mad. Oh, <laughs> she was so like, she was just done with it. So anyway. So at that point, did you just go f- into full support like the labor mode like, and like she's probably thinking like what's the story did you try to explain it or were I know, you just no, like, like no i'll tell you later it was like an out-of-body experience man like i it was so weird like i remember my brain was so split between mortality and what just happened and me bringing another life into this world and like i actually called a buddy of mine and i'm like hey i, I need some food <laughs> like can you bring me some tacos and so my buddy matt brings me some tacos and i just up and leave the room while she's in labor to go eat. And she to this day is like so mad that I left <laughs> again. So anyway. That's yeah. awesome. Oh uh, my goodness. Well, Tyson, <laughs> we appreciate you coming on here, talking to us about the mountain biking, um, definitely about the flying. It Both topics that I don't know much about, so I, I was entertained for sure. And I think we may need to have a round two with them sometime soon. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, is, we kind of... We got more This stories, was educational. Right? <laughs> we got into a couple stories, and then the next one, we can just hit it hard oh, on yeah. different stories and yeah. other topics, too. Yeah. Um, this week, for our listeners, we will skip winners and losers, and so we'll bring that back for you next week. Um, but we do appreciate Tyson. Thank you so much for being our visitor. Yeah, thanks for having and me. And thank you for letting us know you. Yeah. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Nice.